The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. So, Father, we come again thanking you for your word, thanking you for your spirit that wrote it and helps us to see it and impress it upon our hearts. And we thank you for your son that all of your word points to. So, Lord, do your work among us now. Comfort us, convict us, exhort us, encourage us through your word, by the power of the Spirit, to make much of Jesus in our hearts, we pray. In his name, amen. So we're we're marching on now at a pretty quick pace to the book of Acts, chapter at a time, because that's kind of how the stories are going now. And at the center of our passage today is Paul's worship of Jesus that makes him willing to die to do what Jesus wants him to do and to say what Jesus wants him to say for the sake of his name. So I'm arguing that at the center of this passage, right, it's a story about travels and trials and vows, but at the center of this passage is a heartbeat of the Apostle Paul of worship that says, I will go and do whatever you want me to do, And I will say whatever you want me to say to whoever you want me to say it to. And as I read this passage, I wonder if your heart does this too. I just go, Lord, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to have a a heartbeat like that. In fact, as I was reading this week, I was thinking this is the definition of true freedom. To just gladly walk in obedience to King Jesus. Right? Isn't that what freedom is? Isn't that what we're made for? To worship King Jesus. And therefore when our hearts are set free to worship and just go where he tells us to go and do what he tells us to do and say what he tells us to say, we're free. So then, if you're like me, you start asking, what might keep me from this kind of freedom? This kind of freedom that Paul says, I'm willing to even die for the sake of the name of Jesus. And my, my mind wandered to Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. So listen to what the author of Hebrews says there. He says, Since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, Jesus likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So you see the connection my mind's starting to make. There's a a slavery, a lifelong slavery through the fear of death. And here Paul is saying, I'm ready to die for the sake of Jesus. Meaning somehow he's been set free from that fear of death. This passage in Hebrews tells us why Jesus died. One of the reasons He died that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. And so from this passage, we say, well, how did he do that? How did he destroy him? Well, he won the victory for his people by taking away the sting of death, which is sin. Death is still the ultimate enemy, right? Death is not good. (laughs) Death is not a good thing. It's the ultimate consequence of sin, 
And so now, in Jesus, the devil has ultimately lost. So here's the picture the Bible would give us. The devil was successful in his deception in the garden, in that first tree in the garden, in getting Adam and Eve to disobey and bring the curse of death by cutting them off from the tree of life. That's what the devil did. But Jesus reversed the curse by dying for our sins and making a new tree of life for all who would believe. So the reversal story of the whole Bible. So now, life is available. True life. Right? The last enemy is defeated for those in Christ. Those who believe in Christ, according to John 11, they never die. And that truth is meant to deliver us from being enslaved to lives lived from that fear. And I would just argue that Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 is, is a paradigm for us. In other words, what I mean is that this is the fear, one of the underlying fears that enslaves the whole world and still often enslaves us. So here's what I mean. Life is fragile. And so don't we often anxiously seek to squeeze out as much pleasure from this life as possible? Don't we do that? Like, oh, it's so short. Do you see that with your kids? They're growing up so fast. Right? Or, or my job is so fragile or finances are so fragile. So what does that lead to when we're, when we're anxiously trying to squeeze all we can out of this life because of this slavery to the fear of death? What do we do? Well, all sorts of messed up things. Right? All sorts of misguided things in light of reality. Let me give you some examples to make it land. I think this kind of fear enslaves a world like the American world especially, to see the stuff that we have, like our toys and our homes and our vacations and our jobs, as absolutely essential to our identity and to our joy. And so we do whatever it takes to have them. Like people go into massive amounts of debt because of the fear of death. (laughs) Marriages dissolve because of the fear of death. i got to get as much out of this life as I can. This kind of fear enslaves a world to see self-expression and instant gratification as essential to joy. And so it makes gender a choice. And it makes sex recreational fun rather than seeing those things in light of the eternal plan of God. I need everything I can get out of life right now. This kind of fear keeps believers trapped in secret sin and shame because to confess it would cost too much in this life. Some of us in this room are trapped in secret sin and shame never to confess it because of what it would cost in this life. This kind of fear keeps believers from sharing the gospel with their neighbors and friends and family because it might cost something in the here and now. This kind of fear drives the engine of social media interactions that wound and destroy, or at the very least, simply confirm who the bad guys are that will bring out your greatest fears most quickly. Right? What, what's underneath those interactions is a fear that enslaves. This kind of fear keeps us holding on to bitterness and anger against those that have hurt us rather than take the risk of forgiveness. 
We just let it go and say, it's okay. It's not all about this life. It's not all about this bitterness. This kind of fear makes us bitter against God when circumstances get hard in this life because we forget that he's working for our good so that we might dwell in his house forever. We think it's all about this moment, this life. And the devil, since about Genesis 3, loves to play on this fear. To whisper in our ears and in our hearts, what are you missing out on in this life? What, what is God keeping from you? That would cost too much for you to confess that sin or to forgive that person or to lay down that preference. And the heartbeat of Acts 21 is a picture for us of what it looks like to be set free, not perfectly, but really set free to live without that fear as the driver of our lives. So I've been praying this morning that this passage, as we watch Paul travel and take vows, that we would just see a heart set free from the fear of death and that God would draw us into that gospel confidence. Let's dive in. Point number one, we see this voyage for Christ in verses 1 to 16. So in these verses, we see Paul has left his tearful goodbye with the Ephesian elders and has his mind set, it says in chapter 20, verse 16, that he's going to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Why did Paul want to go to Jerusalem? Well, we can infer from the book of Acts that it was probably to check in on them, see how the church there is doing, and tell them of all that God had been doing among the Gentiles. That was just a burden of Paul. So I would circle back around and check in and say, here's what God is doing to encourage their hearts. It was probably also, we can infer from some of the epistles, to deliver to them the financial gift he had been collecting from the various Gentile churches. So here he is going back to where it all started to say, here's what God's doing among the Gentiles and here's a gift from them to you. The gospel has created generosity among the nations. And on his way to Jerusalem, we see Paul stop several times. And what does he do each time? He seeks out the church. He seeks out his brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, why does he do that? Because God is his only good. He's marching to Jerusalem towards suffering. And the saints in the land, like we saw last week, they are all his delight. When Paul stops and has some time, he wants to be surrounded by his brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage them and be encouraged even as he heads towards suffering. So Paul stops twice to meet these believers and both times there's there's two themes that run through these places he stops the first theme is that these believers get these impressions from the holy spirit that paul is going to find trouble in jerusalem so both groups of people that shows up paul the holy spirit's telling us it's not going to be good if you go there and both times, believers try to then tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> that makes sense. Paul, he's telling us it's going to be bad. Therefore, simple recommendation, how about we detour? And the second stop, it gets a little bit more specific. Paul stays with one of the early characters in the book of Acts. You remember Philip? 
Philip shows up in chapter 6 as one of the, the seven men to be devoted to caring for the neglected widows in the church. Philip shows up in Acts 8 as he's preaching the gospel and revival is coming about in Samaria. Philip shows up then with the Ethiopian eunuch and the gospel is going to be taken to the nation. So Paul is staying with him. I love these stories because it makes these people real. Right here, Philip was. We can just think of him as he's the chariot guy. But then here Paul is back at his house. This is God working in real time, in real history among his church. And while he's there, uh, a prophet named Agabus shows up. Agabus showed up back in chapter 11. He's the one who initially said, hey, there's going to be a great famine in Jerusalem. Turns out he was right. So he comes down again. And he acts out a prophecy, right? Taking a belt and binding his wrists and binding his ankles, right? That kind of stuff isn't happening so much in our worship services. But here Agabus comes and acts out this kind of vivid prophecy in the spirit and says, that's what's going to happen to you, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem. So just a quick word about this prophecy. Some argue Well, it didn't come true because as we'll see uh, later in the chapter, it was the Romans who bound Paul and not the Jews. And Agabus says it's going to be the Jews. But I think it's likely that the imagery here is meant to show the Jews being the ones responsible for his arrest and his imprisonment. And so he's just saying, here's what's coming. You know the Jews are there. You know they don't like you. You know they've heard about you. And if you go, I'm not seeing good things ahead for you. And so with this graphic imagery, the believers there, including Luke, he says, we and those who were there. So now Luke's going, that's a bad picture. Please, can we not go to Jerusalem? Like, I know you want to go there, Paul, but can we please not go? It says they weep and they plead with him not to go on. But Paul already knew this was coming. So if we were going to ask, Paul, what are you expecting when you get to Jerusalem, are these impressions from the Holy Spirit new to you? Well, back in chapter 20, Nick preached on this just a couple weeks ago, verses 22 to 23. If you look there, here's what it says. Here's what Paul says. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me In every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul says, there's not much I know except that prison and suffering awaits. So as this Holy Spirit impressions are coming, you can imagine Paul going, yeah, guys, I know. (laughs) I know that's what the Holy Spirit said to me too, and I'm still going. So the Holy Spirit was telling the truth. Through Agabus, The Holy Spirit was telling the truth to the first group of believers about the dangers to come. And so the conclusion of those onlookers was, don't go. Don't go. And that's a reasonable response. <laughs> right? it's, it's easy to look at these stories and go, Paul's the hero, he's the brave one. And, and these believers, well, they're just scared. Well, they probably are a little bit afraid. But it's right, right, kids? It's right. If you knew one of your friends and families was heading towards danger, you would tell them not to go. Right? That's, that's normal. 
Paul, they told you suffering is coming. We're telling you suffering is coming. You're going to be bound. You're going to be chained. Right? You're going to be imprisoned. You're so important for the mission. We love you so much. We don't want you to go. They're, they're weeping and they're crying. This makes sense. It's good, sound advice. Unless it's not what God wants. It's really good, sound advice, unless it's not what God wants. So how does Paul respond? Look at verse 13. I think this is the heart of the chapter. Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, now notice, I think this is important, notice that Paul is sad about this. Paul's not a superhero apostle who doesn't feel any feeling except for Jesus. He's a real guy and he's sad. He says, his heart is breaking. Why are you breaking my heart? He cares about these people. He's not cold and distant. He just wept with the Ephesian elders. His heart is breaking over their tears now. But he's been called to go by King Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has confirmed this. Even these warnings from these believers are simply a confirmation of what the Holy Spirit has already told him about his ministry. And so Paul, not enslaved by the fear of death, but set free to a life of obedience will not relent. And so this is what it says in verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. That would be a hard thing to accept. Right? Please don't go. Death, imprisonment is coming. Paul's going, guys, I, I know and I gotta go because the Holy Spirit's telling me and the collective obedience. Say, okay, let the will of the Lord be done. Sometimes the will of God leads us to hard and wearying days for the sake of eternal joy and rest. Some of you are in those seasons right now. Hard and wearying days by the will of the Lord for eternal joy and rest. Sometimes the will of God leads us to lay down earthly comforts for eternal comforts. Sometimes the will of God leads us to gospel goodbyes for the sake of the name. Sometimes Jesus leads us to take up our cross and follow him, living a life of death, that we might find true freedom in life, having all of the earthly comfort stripped away. And so with that paradigm in their minds, it says they prepare their things and they travel towards Jerusalem. Let the will of the Lord be done. Point number two, this vow for Christ. So Paul gets to Jerusalem here in verses 17 to 20, and he meets with James, and he meets with all the elders, and it says they receive Paul with joy. And they, they tell them all that God has been doing among the nations, and they probably deliver this financial gift from these other churches that Paul has been among. And this leads to all of them glorifying God for his work among the nations. Now, this isn't the main point of what's going on here, but I just want to make a, a small note, a little heart check for us here at, at Bethlehem South Campus to say that it is a good and right thing to rejoice over what God is doing in places that are not us. We see that here in the Jerusalem church. 
So as we hear about good things that God is doing in this church or that church or in this place or that place and it's a place different from us and our stuff isn't going so great right now, can we rejoice and glorify God? Yeah, it's tough here, but man, God is doing crazy good things over there. Can we rejoice and glorify God or can we only rejoice over what God is doing in our little place? Do we have a a corporate identity of who we are, not a Jesus identity of who we are. So after this recounting of all that God is doing, James tells Paul of a concern he has, which turns out is a very true concern as we find out a few verses later. So many Jews are becoming believers in Jesus. That's not the concern. That's the good news. Thousands are becoming believers in Jesus. But these Jews are still zealous for the law. And what they've heard about Paul and his travels is that Paul is telling all the Jews who are among the Gentiles he's ministering to that they should forsake Moses and not circumcise their children. And James worries that they'll get the wrong idea about Paul and it'll bring about division in the church of God. So he asks Paul, to show that his message is not one of forsaking Moses by purifying himself with four brothers who are taking a vow and shaving their heads and actually paying for their expenses. James says, This will show the Jewish believers that what has been said of you is not true. And then James, to clarify things, make sure Paul doesn't get the wrong idea of what he's saying, says, Remember what we decided back in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Remember that we said... Yep, the Gentiles would not need to be circumcised. They would not need to do that. They'd simply need to abstain from idolatry and pagan worship and sexual immorality. Those are things that they already should have wanted to abstain from as believers, to be clear. But also things that would have been especially dividing in the early church among Jewish and Gentile believers as the Gentile believers had time to grow up into their faith. And so James here is seeking unity, but he's being really clear. I'm not saying we're going back to the law thing, Paul. We already decided that back here. But I'm asking you to help me with the unity of the church. And so on the next day, Paul does it. That's what we get in verse 26. So we've already, we've already talked about this in chapter 15, if you were here then. But why can Paul do this? This seems really, really strange. We talked in, in Acts chapter 15 about how Paul is going, listen, No circumcision over my dead body. We will not add circumcision to the gospel. Not over my dead body. We see that in the book of Galatians, for example. Get played out as Judaizers come in and they they say you must be circumcised to be saved. And then what do we see right after that story in the next chapter of Acts? Paul tells Timothy, hey, we're going to go minister in this context. And to come with me, you've got to get circumcised. Right? And we said, What? What, what is that? How can he do that? Well, the reason he can do that is that Paul's message is not that no one can continue to observe the law of Moses. That's not his message. That wasn't what Paul was against. Paul's message and James' message, for that matter, is that no one can be saved by keeping the law. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. 
It's only by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus that salvation can come. Therefore, when people were coming into Gentile churches, or even if they would have been coming into Jewish churches and telling them, you can't be a part of God's people, you can't be saved without being circumcised, Paul stood against it. But Paul was not just against Moses arbitrarily or those who might still practice aspects of it, as long as it was clear where salvation was found. As long as it was clear that there's no other name under heaven, you can't be saved through Moses or his law or through circumcision. So Paul could have said, I don't need to practice the law. I'm free from that. I don't care what they think. Tell them to chill out. Right? Tell them, tell them to come talk to me about it. I'll tell them about the new covenant that we're in. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm free. I don't have to do that. And that would have been his right. It would have been his his freedom. But Paul is more free than that. Paul is free to a way deeper level than that. Paul is free in Christ to lay down his rights for the sake of others. Paul is free in Christ to not be enslaved to need to cling to his preferences and freedoms and rights in this life. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 20. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So Paul's free to be a servant. <laughs> Paul's free to lay down his life. He says, I do that that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. That I might win those under the law. So Paul's saying, I'm, I'm free from all of this. My identity is not as a Jew. Right? Isn't it strange that he says in 1 Corinthians, I became as a Jew. Paul is a Jew. <laughs> He's saying I became as a Jew because that's not his primary identity anymore. He is in Christ. And because he's in Christ, as long as it is clear that there is not salvation in the law, you can't be saved by keeping the law, you can't add that to the message of Jesus, he is free to go low that he might not give offense. He is free to lay down his preferences of things he really is passionate about in order to serve his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Kids, do you know that it is better to not fight over your preferences if you can serve others? I see one little girl that knows. (laughs) So let me ask you this, kids. Aren't most of the fights you get into, whether at home or on the playground uh, or wherever you are, aren't most of them because you just want something different than someone else? You want to play this game first, right? And you worry if you don't play this game first, you might not play it at all. Who knows when mom and dad will say it's time to go home, right? You You want this toy first. You, you want this thing first. You want this dessert. You want this whatever. But what if you ask Jesus to help you learn to serve others and not need to get your way? Adults, I'll just say it. Division in the church in Acts 21 and in the year 2021 is often driven by people fearfully clinging to preferences And then unfairly characterizing or villainizing those who don't hold the same preferences. Even in the church. But that's not the way of Christ. 
That's just not the way of Christ. Jesus, can you, can you imagine Jesus' preference was probably stay in eternity with his Father, eternal joy, <laughs> eternal perfection, enjoy his Father, continue just that life with, with unbroken, right, unbroken perfection with his Father from eternity past. And yet what he does is he lays down his eternal rights to come and to serve even to death on a cross. And yet the preferences we fight over, how silly are they in light of our Savior? The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us to transform us, to live lives free from needing to cling to our preferences because like we only act like we have this only, only this little life to live. Right? Isn't that why we do it? Like it's so scary. What if we lose this? Or what if you think this? Or what if your freedoms impinge on my freedoms? Or your preferences on my preferences? We act like we only have this little life to live. But we have eternity. We have eternity to live. We have forever to live. Can we not lay down our preferences for the next 90 years or so? What a small thing it is to lay down our preferences for 90, 100 years at best for eternal purposes. Point number three, viciousness against Christ. So this is becoming very predictable if you've hung out with us for any number of weeks in Acts. Uh, the unique part of this is that Paul is running into some different old friends. So we saw him run into Philip and stay at his house. That's the good kind of reunion. Here, Paul runs into some old friends the Jews from Asia. You want to read about them and go back to chapter 13 and figure out that they had already once stirred up crowds against him because of their jealousy in Antioch. Well, some of these Jews who we know already know and don't like Paul, some of them are at the temple when Paul is there. And sometime earlier in the week, you can imagine they had seen Paul with a Gentile out in the city somewhere and right, they, they hate Paul. You go back and read chapter 13, they're evil. They're jealous. And so as soon as they see him with a Gentile, you can just imagine the behind the closed doors meeting start, right? We're going to get him. We're going to get him. He's here. This is our second chance. He's not going to get away this time. So they'd seen him with a Gentile. And so when they see him in the temple with these men, actually acting in accordance with the law, they mistakenly think he has brought a Gentile into the temple which would have been considered a massive defilement of the temple and actually worthy of death. And actually Rome, if you go back and kind of read the history, Rome would often go ahead and let the Jews put people to death for this defilement of their religion. So they're seeing him as defiling God's place and God's presence, and they were wrong. But as we see with the mobs throughout Acts, no one's doing a ton of fact-checking. Right, this is like research on Wikipedia. Um, they're just grabbing a couple things and going, this must be true. But it's still a good moment here for us just to see the contrast. Here are the Jews and the charges. You've brought Gentiles into the holy place. You've defiled God's presence. You've defiled God's people. But how radical is the gospel that Paul is preaching. The reason he's going low, the reason he's giving up his preferences is that the gospel has brought together Jew and Gentile by the blood of Jesus to be a new temple of God. 
Right? No longer is there a physical place, but God's people will worship in spirit and in truth, bought by the blood of Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit to be a new temple of God to come together on the most important thing in the universe. Though they'll live it out a bit differently in this early church. And so the moment the Holy Spirit had predicted is happening, they're beating him. Right? They, they drag him out. They shut the temple gates. I just point out that fact to show why are they shutting the temple gates? Making sure no more defilement gets in there. We're getting you and your pollution out of our temple. We're shutting the door behind you. You're not getting back in while we beat you to death. And to keep things pure, they're going to kill Paul. This was worthy of death to them, whether they stopped to ask if he'd actually done it or not. And you're meant to hear, in verse 36, the echoes of the words against Jesus when the people say, away with him. meant to hear that. You're meant to see, here we are again. Where are we? Are we in Jerusalem again? Are we at the temple again? Are they shouting at this representative of Jesus, away with him, the same people, the same group, the same persecution as Paul is trying to lay down his life for the sake of Jesus? Well, this commotion gets reported to the tribune. They do not like uh, commotion. So they send soldiers who grab Paul and bind him, just like Agabus had predicted. And the the tribune asks, who is he and what he's done? And again, as we've seen with crowds, no one knows what's going on. It says they give a, a bunch of different answers. So the tribune cannot figure out And Paul is ordered to be brought to the barracks. And the the violence and the anger is so much that it says that the soldiers have to physically carry him. Because he's not able to walk because the crowds are so vicious. So the soldiers are probably lifting him up, making a wall around him, and ushering him away from this vicious crowd. But we should be clear that as we go back to chapter 13 and see these same enemies of Paul, that they are actually against Jesus and his message of salvation. And if it wasn't going to be Paul, it would be someone else. They're against Jesus. It makes them jealous. It would ruin their place of power and prestige. They live in the fear of death. And they need that power and prestige to make life in the present matter now. To get all out of this life they can now. So they persecute and would even kill to preserve it. And so it is with the world today. Right? It is still against Jesus. It's still against Jesus. And why? I mean, if you don't know who he is, doesn't it make sense? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, you're a sinner. <laughs> the only true way of life is to admit your sin and trust my forgiveness. Jesus says, come and die that you might truly live. Jesus says, <laughs> I'm not stealing anything ultimately important. You think that I'm coming to steal your joy, but what I'm really doing is dying to deliver you from fear of death so you can walk in the freedom of eternal life with me. Won't you hear me? Won't you walk away from this fear? Won't you come into my presence now and then in all of eternity? Well, if you feel like you're fighting, like these Jews did, like our world does, If you feel like you're fighting for every ounce of what you can squeeze out of this fragile and short life here, you will be vicious to those who stand in your way. You'll be vicious. 
We see that on our social media feeds. We see that in our politics. We see that in wicked regimes around the world. We see that in the church. A viciousness that clings to this moment and will beat down anyone who gets in the way of us getting what we need in this moment. The heartbeat of this chapter is that we'd see what it's like to be set free from the fear of death, that it would free us to go where Jesus tells us to go. Like, like Paul in this story goes about 725 miles by dangerous voyage on a ship and by, probably by horse, it says in the inland, that we'd go where Jesus tells us to go, wherever he tells us to go, whenever he tells us to go, that we do what he tells us to do, whatever he tells us to do, whenever he tells us to do it, that we'd say what he tells us to say, whenever he tells us to say it, wherever he tells us to say it, that we'd lay down our rights and preferences, that we'd endure suffering and even death Because we don't live in the fear of death, needing to squeeze as much out of this life as possible. We live for the name of Jesus and the eternal life that we have in him. That we take up our cross and find true life. That we die to ourselves and find true freedom in Christ. So let me read verse 13 one more time. Then we're going to go to the Lord for a few minutes. Paul says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So would you bow your heads? And I'm just going to ask us a couple questions that we're going to talk to Jesus about right now. So first, as you talk to Jesus, just ask him to show you where you're operating from fear. Where are you clinging to the things of this life for your hope and your joy even the good things of this life. So where are you operating from fear and where are you clinging to the things of this life? Take a couple minutes and talk to him about that. Next question, where is this fear or are there areas where this fear is keeping you in secret sin and shame? Where it would cost too much Tell the truth about what you're struggling with. Where does this fear keep you from radical obedience and confessing sin, sharing the gospel, and how you spend your time and your energy? Where is this fear making you squeeze everything out of this life in ways that are having you walk away from Jesus? Finally, where are we enslaved individually or as a church to our preferences rather than free to lay them down for the sake of others? What preferences are we clinging to in our personal lives or as a church rather than being willing to lay them down for the sake of Christ? So Lord, we come now, we're going to come and eat and drink with you in a moment. And Lord, we thank you.
for coming and living the perfect life we could never live, dying the death that we deserve to die, rising again to conquer death so that you have also conquered the fear of death for those who belong to you. Those who believe in you will never die. And so, Lord, we are set free to walk out of sin, to walk out of shame, to walk out of fear, to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run the race you've set before us, looking to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you endured the cross. Lord, that same joy of eternal glory with you is set before us. And Lord, we don't want to be enslaved. We don't want to be bound. We don't want to be paralyzed in our sin, in our shame, in our fear. Lord, we want to run the race. We want to go where you tell us to go and say what you tell us to say and do what you tell us to do by the power of your spirit and with the promises of the gospel deep in our souls. So as we come to the communion table to eat and drink with you, we offer our lives to you as living sacrifices. And we pray that you would undo the knots of fear in our hearts by the goodness of your gospel. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.